Hello, everybody. This is Brian McGrath. I'm the Vice President of External Relations at EdChoice, and I'm thrilled to have a longtime friend of mine and also the Director for Arizona Center for Student Opportunities, Matt Ladner, with us today. Matt, how are you doing? Great. Great. Thanks for joining us. Usually when I do these, these kinds of interviews or podcasts, I spend a lot of time thinking up lots of questions that I need to ask the guest so I can draw all sort of things out there. But you are such an evangelist for Arizona, and that's our topic today, the success of Arizona, that I, I think I just have one question to start with, which is, what's going on in Arizona? Tell us the good news and uh, tell us what we can make of it. Sure thing. Well, kids learn more in school in Arizona per year than any other state in the country. How's that? That's, that, that's a good Sounds impressive to, start. <laughs> that's a good place to start, right? Stanford University has a, a group of data that they use. They, they've linked state testing data from across the country. They can tell you about growth and tell you about proficiency by subgroups and all that sort of thing. And the good news for Arizona is, is that Arizona has the highest level of academic growth overall. We have the highest overall level of academic growth for low-income kids. And we rank either you know first or second in a variety of different student subgroups. So this is different than to say that Arizona has the highest test scores, right? This is tracking, you know, like where did kids start in third grade and where did they end up in eighth grade, right? And growth is what you need if you are starting off behind, which our kids do, obviously. Arizona is a low-income state and we're at the border of Mexico. We have a majority-minority student population. And we haven't allowed any of that stuff to stop us, right? So there's a lot of positive momentum. And I think that yeah, more than anything else, Arizona gives lie to the idea that, you know, somehow school choice will harm public or district schools in some way, right? You know, we still have district schools here. They still educate a majority of the kids. They just do so now at a higher level than they did in the past. And that's fantastic. We're not out to destroy public education. We're out to give families options. And uh, I think it's still the case that Arizona has done more of that than other states, although there's certainly competition now. Yeah. Including from Indiana, watching what you guys are doing. So you're not going to let us rest on our laurels. Well, that's good. A little healthy competition amongst choice states is a good thing. Rewind a little bit and tell me what was happening kind of before choice became a, a big part of Arizona and, and then maybe expand on why those things didn't work and the expansion of choice has worked to improve academic outcomes like growth for your students in Arizona. Yeah, Arizona is an interesting state. I like to tell audiences sometimes that I'll get up to the podium and say that my name is Matthew Ladner and I'm from the future, right? I'm from your state's demographic future, right? Because Arizona is both a retirement destination and a border state. So we've had very large increases in both our elderly and our Hispanic populations here in the state. And the state has rapidly grown all the way back to say World War II, right? Enrollment growth was like a defining characteristic, right? The rest of y'all keep moving here and bringing your golf clubs. That's great. <laughs> we want you. But if you stretch the NAEP data back as far as it goes, the National Assessment of Educational Progress or the Nation's Report Card, you take that state-level data back as far as it will go, which is 1990. The Arizona of 1990 
was not setting the world on fire in terms of academic performance. It was a majority Anglo state at that point. It was much smaller than it is now. It's probably half the size of a number of kids in the public school system. It was majority Anglo and it was very low performing. When you take those old data, not, not all states participated back in those days. That started, all states started participating in NAEP in 2003. So it's a little spotty, but you know, going back and looking at that data, breaking it down by subgroups and things like that. Alabama was the lowest performing state back then. They, they still are now. And usually Arizona would be the second to lowest, right? <laughs> because we have a very large elderly population, right? And we also have large numbers of kids, right? We have large average family sizes here. A lot of Catholic and LES families in Arizona. You don't have that many people in the middle sort of paying the taxes, right? Um, and elderly people has been empirically studied. They, they vote against bonds and overrides and things like that. So our spending per pupil was low, okay? You know, when that demographic profile is not designed to win this, a spending per pupil contest, right? It's, it's just not, okay? So we were predominantly Anglo, relatively low spending, and very low performing and struggling to keep up with enrollment growth. Okay. That was another defining characteristic of the system back then. The state was literally kind of bankrupting itself, trying to keep up with building new district buildings fast enough to accommodate enrollment growth. And the average results were bad. <laughs> okay. So all the way back in 1994, and this situation is hard for a lot of people back East to get their heads around, right? Because it's just not the world they've ever lived in. Yeah. Maryland has never struggled to, you know, cope with enrollment growth anytime recently, right? <laughs> At least not Arizona style enrollment growth. So, you know, in 1994, some sort of the, the really the first generation of visionary leaders, I would say, were people like Lisa Graham Keegan and Tom Patterson in the legislature. You know, someone shows up in Arizona and says, hey, up, up in Minnesota, they've got this idea called a charter school. If you pass a charter school law, you'll have educators that go and, and open new schools and you get new school space and the state doesn't even pay for the space. Right. And unlike the consensus back east, right, back east, there was this, always this sort of like, oh, my gosh, what if someone opens a bad charter school? Right. Right. You're sitting here in Arizona and you're paying like 400 to 500 million dollars a year for new districts and schools. And the results are just, you know, they're not great. Right. So governor at that time was a, a gentleman named Fife Symington. And Lisa Graham Keegan and Tom Patterson and Five Simonton basically said, give me the dice, right? Like, what do I have to lose? Right, it's not going to get worse, though. Let's try something different. <laughs> so they passed a very liberal charter school law. And then in 1997, Arizona passed the first scholarship tax credit program. This has been widely emulated since then and expanded in a number of subsequent years. We have now have like three different scholarship tax credit programs, uh, one for middle and low income kids, one is universal, another is for kids with disabilities. And then in 2011, Arizona lawmakers uh, passed the nation's first education savings account program. 
So the good thing about all of this is that it set Arizona on a path to sort of a virtuous cycle. And it's a virtuous cycle that I, I don't believe we've seen in any other states yet. But this is kind of how it played out. And, so, and some of it was just really wise policy on the part of our lawmakers. And some of it was just, you know, sort of like random chance, right? You know, but Arizona's big improvement in academic performance actually started after 2009. And it's not what you would expect because this was the Great Recession and the Great Recession was brutal on Arizona's economy, right? Like our economy was then and to a lesser extent still is very dependent on housing, right? We, we build houses and golf courses for the rest of you to enjoy when you decide to become Arizonans. Thank, thank you for doing that. I enjoyed it just last spring. Yep. So all of a sudden, the last thing you want when you're Arizona is a nationwide housing-led economic collapse, right? Right. So you can't sell your house in, in Illinois and join the other Cubs fans here in Arizona. And suddenly the state's economy is in a very, very bad fix, right? There was a 20% reduction in general, general fund revenue in Arizona in 2009, just gone. So this would be exactly not the period you would expect Arizona to start leading the nation in academic gains, but it's actually what happened, right? And part of what happened in this virtuous cycle was that if you were a high demand charter school organization, right? You, and, and you were still able to access financing during the great recession, which was a trick, right? This is no small thing, but if you were in that situation and charter schools had their funding cut during this period too, right? So it was tough for everyone. You were able to access, you know, school facilities in a way that, you know, may never happen again, right? There were literally facilities that had been asking for $25 million before the Great Recession that were selling for $7 million. <laughs> so the schools were able to find these elusive buildings that many places where they have charter laws kind of, they don't grow because they you don't have capital to buy buildings or build buildings. So they were right. kind of all cheap. They were the, the beneficiary of a housing and facilities downturn. That's kind of a fascinating quirk of fate. Right. And it actually sparked this virtuous cycle, I think, because what happened is, is that so you had a very large increase in charter school enrollment. You had also, you know, in increases, but much smaller in, in uh, private choice, right? This is also the period where you've been at the ESA program and, you know, the tax credit programs grew. So the net result of that was, is that when we finally got data about how much open enrollment was happening in the districts, right? That happened like years after the Great Recession. Lo and behold, we find out that about third of the students in the Phoenix area, right, which is 67% of the students in Arizona are here in the Phoenix metro area. Okay. Well, lo and behold, we finally get some data on this and a third of them are using open enrollment. A third of the district wow. is. Okay. That doesn't mean they're always switching districts. Sometimes they're moving within schools, within districts, and sometimes between districts. Okay. But we're defining open enrollment here as 
you're attending a district school, but you're not attending your assigned district school. Okay. So between a third of students doing open enrollment and, and at this time, the data was 16% of kids attending charter schools. That's more like 21% now. And, you know, put in our private school kids and homeschool kids, it's a majority of kids in the Phoenix area are not attending their zone district school. Yeah. Okay. And so I think the dominoes here was the expansion of choice, the more active participation of especially suburban districts in open enrollment. Okay. And that started the sort of this virtuous cycle. For instance, the Scottsdale Unified School District, where you play golf the other day, Brian. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that district has 22,000 students and 4,000 of the 22,000 are from outside of Scottsdale Unified's of tennis boundaries. Okay. That's very unusual for a fancy suburban district. <laughs> Actually, let me ask you about that. So were they okay with that? I mean, did the, did the suburban school districts or even the everyone's like buy into this from the get go, or was there some buildup to, Hey, we know this is inevitable. So we might as well benefit or how did, how did the public react when choice was rolled out? Because you kind of gave it this, the, the timeline, it took about from 94 in the first charter to 2011, which is ESA. And there's some things in between there, I know, but I mean, so how did the public react to all this introduction of choice? Was there a fight? Was it like, thank goodness we have more choices or do they, Arizona has a bit of a, you know, independent libertarian streak, if I recall from my time out there. I mean, do they just kind of go with it or what was the feedback from the public? Well, it's been very interesting because the very same forces that I would argue have led to Arizona's academic improvement, right? You know, if somebody had been drafting a fantasy football team of states, like let's pick the states that are going to lead the nation in academic gains, right? Right doing this draft in 2009, you know, Arizona would have been the shy last kid picked, like sitting there embarrassed against the wall, hoping someone <laughs> like, and yet, you know, somehow we're jumping from the free throw line and dunking, right? <laughs> <You know? laughs> so, um, Who is this kid? Hey, you've been hustling us all yeah, this time. <laughs> now look, we can never say policy X obviously resulted in academic gain. Right. There's just, there's too many things going on all at the same time, but I will say this: you would struggle to name anything else about Arizona K-12 that is unique. Yeah. Like, you know, we, we test, everyone tests, you know, we, we do great schools, A, A to F, but, you know, quite frankly, we've, we've turned that system off a number of years and turned it back on. And it's not a very plausible source for like a gigantic amount of, of academic improvement. We still don't spend very high compared to the national average or our, our demographics. You know, our age demography hasn't changed, right? We still have a lot of old people and uh, a lot of kids. But we do have an unusually large amount of choice going on, right? Yeah, it sounds like it. And so it's sort of the, the prime suspect in my view. But getting back to your question, the, the reaction to this has been difficult, and the reality is, is that school choice is being done primarily by school districts. In that study I told you about, about open enrollment, yeah. there were almost two open enrollment kids for every charter school kid. And the number of charter school kids greatly outnumbered the number of private choice kids. Okay. 
So if we're going to make the, the Justice League of school choice in Arizona, <laughs> the school districts are Superman, okay? The charter schools are Batman, and private choice is like Robin, okay? Well, that's not to diminish Robin because, you know, we all, if you've read enough comic books, you always come up on one where Robin somehow saves the day after Batman has been captured. In other words, there are plenty of kids whose solution that, that the school they need is not a public or charter school. They, they exist, and, and we're very fortunate to have these programs to serve them. But the King Kong here, you know, the elephant in the room is school districts, okay? Right. Despite that fact, and a district school both gains and loses students through open enrollment, right? You lose some, you gain some. Having said all that, there are school, the district schools that overall don't do well in open enrollment, right? They've either been flat in their enrollment for a long time, or some of them are actually declined, right? Right. And I would say that over the last six, seven years, those people have become very politically active and they're angry and they're looking for someone to blame and it's not the school districts. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. It's those choice people who are ruining everything for the rest of us. <laughs> right. Like somehow Robin is destroying public education, but is not, right? <laughs> you know? right, right. Are they losing students because of academic performance, do you think? Are there other, I mean, there's always other things that you alluded to earlier, but I mean, are they in areas that people just don't want to live anymore? Or are they, you know, are, yeah. they, are they just bad at their job, as it were? I mean, what's the reason do you think they're losing students? I mean, there's, it's impossible. I mean, yes, number one, there's multiple reasons. There, there, there are districts where the population is just kind of aged past, you know, having school-aged kids. And, and sometimes you have you know, uh, very high quality schools in that situation. And they actually open up and bring in kids uh, through open enrollment, right? And, and if they didn't, they would have to wind up reducing their staffs and, and maybe even closing, right? right? No one ever tells that part of the story, right? Right. That story is totally off stage, right? The only story you hear is, you know, our budgets are suffering, you know, they're out to destroy public schools, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? So it really does kind of boil down to philosophically, like the question, why do we spend money on K-12, <laughs> right? And people that fall into my camp, we believe that we spend money on K-12 in order to equip students with the academic knowledge, skills, and habits they need for success in life. Some of our opponents seem to believe that we spend money on K-12 in order to preserve a certain system of schools, right? And that, that clash is prevalent in Arizona politics. But the real struggle is not between district schools and charter schools, and it is not between district schools and private schools. The real tension in the system is between high-demand schools and low-demand schools, right? Because the high-demand district schools are doing just fine. Yeah. No, that would make sense, right? That's sort of always been the theory that the competition would make schools better and whatnot, and, and they would thrive and others wouldn't, and you would then the market would sort it out. Some people don't like that, you know, to use the market terminology, but I think it may be working out that way in Arizona from what I can hear. Yeah. Let me ask you this question. It's a little more vague. It's, I guess, if I'll use your Arizona experience, but... What would you say the most kind of oversold 
opposition argument to school choice is that you've seen in Arizona, you know, whether, I mean, I'll just let you answer that. And then on the flip side of that, what do you think the most oversold pro school choice argument you've seen is, and I'm sort of asking these questions so that as a guy who's been around this for a long time and maybe somebody out there is getting ready to start a program in their state, they can gain from your wisdom. But, um, you know, what do you think on those two things? I mean, on the oversold side, ironically, I'd have to say that it's the emphasis on test scores. Yeah. Despite the fact that we've spent the first 20 minutes here talking about test scores. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's not that we should not talk about test scores or that it shouldn't be a part of the conversation, but I think that it's way more important to talk about school choice as a source of variety and pluralism in schooling. Right. I think that a lot of us in the school choice movement are, you know, tend to be, you know, test score nerds and that sort of thing. And we know from research that your organization has done is that, you know, most people aren't. Right. 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 Most people don't care about that is number one. They, they want to see schools in some marker of success, but they're not picking a school necessarily because, um, you know, their test scores are better than the school next door. There's lots of factors that go into it. Right. I mean, I think the secret sauce of choice is to be able to match uh, your child with the strengths of a particular school, right? Right. I have a piece coming out soon where I talk about school variety that is available in the Phoenix Elementary School District. So this is a downtown Phoenix, high poverty area. And when you go and dig into the results, number one, like both the district and the charter schools have high levels of academic growth. Like, you know, it's pretty good, right? And number two, there are two arts-based schools, both of which are charters. There are two Montessori schools, one of which is a charter, one of which is a district, right? Arizona State University has a, a very prominent charter school there. You know, like these schools don't all look the same, right? They're, they are meaningfully different from each other. And that source of strength is something that you can't replace by, from any other mechanism. Like there's no mechanism that's going to like keep, you know, the state can wave a magic wand and your kid's going to be interested in going to school. Now, if your kid happens to like, like to play trumpet and you go to the Arizona for school for the arts, they are likely to get more engaged in their schooling right? because they're getting to do something they, they really appreciate. So that's really the secret sauce. And I would say that it's, it's underemphasized yeah. in the way we talk about schooling. So the mix of schooling being as important as the actual outcome of some of those, you know, test scores or other things that we measure, which I think is right. When I was out your way in the spring, I noticed just driving around, there was like three or four different types of school all in this one street within a couple of miles of each other. And I was like, oh, look, there's a Montessori. And hey, look, there's a charter. And oh, look, there's public school 101 or whatever it was. And, and I, you know, knowing a little bit about it, I wasn't surprised, but it was interesting to see it in, in person to see that mix. I heard people say this for years, but like the New York City school system can't even be bothered to come up with names for their school. Right, right. I've always wondered about that too. Like, why did you use a generic number? How could you be excited about that as a kid? Hey, I'm part of public school eight. Go eight. I mean, I mean, and that's just like antithetical to the way humans actually work, right? Like we make choices about our lives in every other field. And yet we, you know, circa the end of the 20th century, we had almost entirely standardized the education system of this country. 
right? And that was the goal. Right. You know, we're going to have state academic standards. Everybody's going to study the same stuff. It was almost like, you know, the, there was an old, old saying about the education system in France that the minister of education in Paris could look at his watch and know what every fifth grader in the country was learning right that very moment. Right. Right. I'm an American and I don't that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's not our model. And I think you're right. That may be the best argument. And I think when you talk to people about choice who maybe aren't as engaged in it or don't care as much, they, they do get that. And, you know, the biggest argument I can notice lately, and that's not new, but it, they, the opposition seems to focus a lot on just the dollars. You know, it's, it, they don't even seem to fight about the opportunities or other kinds of schools or things that we think are important. It's all about the money. But going back to that, then, so what do you think they're most, the opposition to choice is most kind of overused, ineffective argument has been that you've seen in your, your two decades of this stuff? Yeah, I mean, the focus on spending has to be, right? I mean, it just has to be, you know, the, uh, well, I mentioned earlier in the Great Recession in Arizona, like, was, are we really went through the ringer? And it was hard. And if you ran a school, school district or a district school or a charter school or whatever, your life was not pleasant, right? You were letting people go right? These kind of cuts were not the OG shucks or spending didn't go up as much as we hoped kind of cuts. These were the actual like 15 to 20% like. Right. The stuff they always threaten about or talk about, but never actually happens. It actually happened. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. This is letting people go. Right. And it wasn't fun. But during that same period, Arizona students made uh, statistically significant gains in all six NAEP exams, fourth, eighth grade, math, reading, and science. I mean, how, like if, you know, you're not supposed to get giant funding cuts and see big academic gains, but this is exactly what happened, <laughs> right? So if we were going to spend our way to high quality schools in America, we would have done it decades ago. We tried, we keep trying, <laughs> right? And it keeps failing, right? But we just didn't do it right. So let's try again. Right, exactly. It wasn't enough. It wasn't done the right way. It wasn't spent the right places, uh, too many strings. Yeah, no, I, I hear you on that. When you talk about different types of schools, and it looks, I guess it's probably still too early to tell, but, um, you know, the pod learning kind of phenomenon I know is taken off in Arizona. And if you were looking out a couple of years, let's not look in the immediate because, you know, sometimes we look at the immediate and think something's true. But, you know, if you're projecting out five years, do you think pods will still be a thing or will they have morphed into something else or you know, will people choose to be that engaged over the long haul? They kind of created or not entirely created, but, you know, during the pandemic, you know, they became at least a term most people knew. But you think they have legs five years down the road? I do. In fact, I remember in Education Next in 2017, someone dared a prediction that said, you know, five to 10 years from now, I think that these things may have grown a lot faster than anyone expected. Well, Bingo. <laughs> right. I, I am hopeful about the advent of micro schools. And I think this is one of Arizona's gifts to the country is that, you know, we weren't the first to do charter schools, but we were the first to kind of really let them go. Right. We actually went to parents and to teachers and educators, right? Like if you've ever been around a group of public school teachers, right, ever, what happens in 10, 15 minutes and they're complaining about administration? Right. Yeah, exactly. Right. And so Arizona was the state that basically went to them and said, don't tell me, show me. 
Right. What would you do if you ran your own school? Because we're going to make that possible for you. Okay. And you can either, you know, keep complaining about your administration or you can show them how to do it. Like which one? Okay. Now the people that, that showed them how to do it, they did that, right? The academic results from Arizona charter schools are very strong. So we didn't invent charter schools, but we were kind of more enthusiastic about it than anywhere else, right? We have a bigger charter school sector than anywhere else in the country. Um, we don't have the biggest scholarship tax credit program, but we were the first one to make charter scholarship tax credits programs. We don't have the biggest ESA program, but we were the first one to do ESAs. I think it very well may be the case that some of the things you see going on in micro-schooling in Arizona are of similar scale and maybe even greater importance. Uh, it, it remains to be seen. But if, you, like, if you've ever read Matt Ridley's book about innovation, right? one of the points that he makes is that it usually happens because people take pre-existing technologies and figure out some new way to combine them. Right. So fracking would be the perfect example of this, right? That was a combination of horizontal drilling and this, like, you know, cracking rock through dynamite or whatever they do down there. Okay. Both of which had existed for many years, but these wildcatters out in Texas spent 17 years figuring out how to put them together. And, you know, maybe some people like fracking, some people don't, but, you know, there's no doubt that it revolutionized the energy world, right? Right. <laughs> the United States went from being a, the biggest importer of, of oil and gas to the biggest exporter in, in fairly short order. Okay. I think that the legacy of the COVID uh, pandemic is likely to be, and not just in education, but a variety of things, is an accelerator of pre-existing trends. Shopping malls were already in trouble before COVID. Now they're in really deep trouble, right? right? Newspapers were already in trouble before COVID. Now they're like in really deep trouble, okay? Um, Microschools were already a thing before COVID. My interest in microschools started when I read a Wired Magazine article in 2015 called, I think it was called The Rise of Homeschooling in Silicon Valley. And uh, reading this article was just like, wow. What this? <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, what is this thing? That looks cool. <laughs> That's exactly what it was. It was because when you read the article, it wasn't about homeschooling. It was really about, about microschooling. And basically what was being described here was, you know, people could do the normal thing. The normal thing would be to put your kid in a, in a school during the day, but then do a bunch of extracurricular stuff in the evening, right? This is, this is also known as the I'm exhausted by driving Madison story, right? I'm exhausted by driving Madison to this, to this <laughs> lesson, to Kumon, to whatever, right? Club sports, whatever, okay? Upper middle-class Americans have been doing this for decades, and we're doing more and more of it all the time. we we'll put the kid in, in school, but we don't totally rely on that school. We want to give them an edge by doing X, Y, and Z, okay? Well, what was going on in that Wired Magazine article was, it's like, what if you turn X, Y, and Z into school? Right, yeah. And give it to everybody, you know? <laughs> I mean, they never stated this, right? But basically, the message of this story was is that software engineers in Silicon Valley had figured out that the time opportunity cost of attending a normal school was, was not worth it if you did things right, according right. to them, right? And I was just like, wow, wow, that's a thing. 
we saw the advent of you know things like wildflower schools and, and Acton Academy micro schools happening. Okay, so this is all happening beforehand. But it wasn't a coincidence that when COVID, the pandemic struck, that you know it was basically Silicon Valley people who created this, you know, I don't know what you would call it, a rebrand. We're not going to call it a homeschool co-op. Right. We're not going to call it a micro school. We're going to call it a pandemic pod. <laughs> right. <laughs> and it was a Facebook group from Silicon Valley that took the lead on that. I'm very encouraged uh, by the combination of like, if you think of a micro school as a combination of different things, right? Sort of like Matt Ridley or, or is it gumbo? What, what are the ingredients of a gumbo, right? And um, the ones that, that I'm most encouraged by are combining sort of, you know, digitally based mastery learning. So meet the kid where they are and let them proceed at their own pace, right? And, and only proceed when they actually learn what they need to learn. They're combining that sort of system with custodial care because these, these schools are, they are fundamentally social, right? Which is, I think, part of the failings of our, you know, maybe like a decade ago when, when MOOCs first came out and everybody was going to get three PhDs from Yale or whatever, and, you know, like <laughs> we shouldn't totally dismiss that because like the, the, the Achilles heel of MOOCs obviously is the low completion rate. Right. Even with the low completion rates, it's still a lot of people, you know, doing them. Right. Um, but yeah, I think one of the things we've learned over the last decade is that education for most people is fundamentally social. Like most people want and need classmates, uh, an in-person instructor, you know, these sort of things, right. The, the idea that we could do without it. Some kids can, but a lot of kids can't. Okay. Right. So the micro school movements that we see now, they scratch that itch. You've got classmates, you've got a community, and actually they're small communities and they're tight knit. So I think part of the secret sauce here is that in these small learning communities, you simply cannot fade into the background. And I know I've done this. I'm sure, Brian, you never did this in school. <laughs> yeah. It might have been a few times where, you know, maybe I hadn't done the reading and kind of back. Open the yeah. door and answer the questions. <laughs> right, exactly. That guy always wants to be the one that gets answered. I'll just sit in the back and pray for an hour. So, like, <laughs> then they don't call have, on me. When you have 11 classmates, it's kind of hard to do that. And a lot of your learning is happening again, self-paced, right? So I've seen surveys of kids, you know, asked about their previous school. And like, you know, 30% of them will say, I, I was hopelessly lost. And another 30% would say I was bored out of my mind. Right. Well, meeting kids where they are and letting them progress at their own pace is a big, 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 big deal if you could figure out how to make work. Okay. But the next part of the gumbo, and I would say it's the secret sauce, is project-based learning. So I, I visited schools and the rhythm is kind of like, you know, the kids get together, they do, they're doing, you know, their, their mastery-based learning um, on their own pace, mostly, you know, through the computers. They break, they have lunch, you know, social activities. And then the, the, the remainder of the day is based on, on projects. Right. And the George Lucas Foundation actually released four studies back in February of 2021. Three of the four were random assignment studies. All four were done by, by reputable academics from around the country at the University of Michigan, Michigan State, Stanford. And they all found 
big positive results associated with project-based learning. And that's good, but this is mostly you're getting back to test course, right? Uh, what I can tell you, Brian, is that when you go visit one of these schools and you see the kids doing the projects, you're like, man, this looks like fun. Right. Like these kids, these kids are having a blast. I visited a Printa micro school out in San Carlos, Arizona, uh, one of our Native American reservations. And, you know, this is the school that's been surrounded by DNF rated district schools for, you know, as long as they've been grading and, you know, um, the schools get a lot of money, right? They get a lot of federal money. Performance is not great. And I'm not saying that that's necessarily all the district's fault or anything, but it is what it is. Right. They, they may or may not be a part of the problem, but they're definitely not the solution, <laughs> right? Right. And I got to go watch these kids uh, doing 3D printing design and they were absolutely crushing it and they were having a complete blast and, you know, I think this is really why, even before anyone has ever been able to see any kind of testing data, right, that um, Prenda had 700 kids enrolled and when the pandemic broke out. And as of late spring of 2021, you know, they were like over 4,000. Yeah. And it's not because Tiger Mom is looking at the Stanford 10 scores going, gimme, gimme, right? This is, uh, uh, although that may come. <laughs> right, yeah. But the kids having fun in school has got to be, I mean, every parent, I have three school-age kids, and, you know, the struggle every day is, to, what do you do in school today? And, and trying to get a sense of, are they enjoying any of it? And too often, the answer is no. It's different on different things. But for the most part, in a lot of schools, it's just, you know, how do you get them to, you know, get something out of the experience that's not just the, well, we got to take the test next week and, and see how that goes. We've sort of sucked the joy out of it a lot. And I think there's more and more people talking about that, but it's how you fix it is, you know, these pods and micro schools may be part of the answer as long as enough people do them. So I like your how you talk about Arizona, kind of like you weren't the first to do this, but you did it better than everybody else. And now we can all benefit from that. What's the next great thing that Arizona is going to show us how to do better that that we might export? Is it sort of a you know, refined micro schooling? Is it, you know, what do you see out there again on a, on a future horizon, not necessarily happening this very second? Yeah. If I had to place bets now, it would be micro schooling. We can't know just how big this is going to get yet, but I think it's very safe to say it's bigger than it is now. But, and again, I think that it very well may be the case that you see the, even districts starting to do that, <laughs> right? Yeah, and I think some of them do it already, actually. I've read a couple of different stories over the last year where districts have created, I mean, they call them something different, but it's kind of a, basically a subset of what they do already, and they do some different things and very micro-schoolish. It's, it's really fascinating because when you look at the districts, again, they're performing much better than they had they did in the past, and there's high rates of academic growth in Arizona's districts, and, and it's a credit to them. And it's a credit to them that they are so active in, this, in the choice market, right? Yeah. Like, you know, this isn't a heavy-handed, like, we're going to hit you over the head and turn every district school into a charter school or anything like that, right? This is more like, these are the incentives. You figure out how you're going to respond to those incentives. <laughs> and, uh, right. <laughs> so I think the, the, the next big thing b besides micro schools very well may be that you may start to see districts starting to replicate high demand schools themselves. Okay. 
Now, the politics of this are so basic that I don't think most people, you know, even, well, I mean, it's hard to say, but like, so there are district schools in Arizona with giant wait lists, right? Why? Well, why, why don't those schools add seats and why don't they like create second schools and third schools and four schools? And in fact, like to, to use the Scottsdale example again, Scottsdale has a lot of empty space in their district. They have 22,000 kids, but they're built for like 30,000 some of the kids. And they have particular schools that have like long wait lists. So I don't know if you wanted to maximize your enrollment, you might like want to create a second, a third, a fourth of the, the schools with a wait list. Now, why doesn't that happen? That doesn't happen anywhere. <laughs> and it's very rare. And, you know, look at the magnet school movement, for instance. It's, it's older than charter schools, but there are fewer magnet schools than charter schools. And the real basic politics of this are, are the same. You don't see a lot of districts going hog wild with magnet schools because the other schools view them as a threat to their enrollment. <laughs> okay. Right? right. If you're Scottsdale Unified and you're one of the, say, under enrolled schools in Scottsdale Unified, right? And someone, and in fact, we don't even get to this point mostly because it's off the table. It's not even up for discussion, right? But if the schools with a wait list come and say, you know what? You know what I really need? is a bigger building. <laughs> so I can like take the kids off my wait list, many of whom will not be from Scottsdale, by the way. Right. So got that going. Okay. And the other schools are going to view that the same they view as a new charter school opening, which is to say they're going to take a dim view of it. Right. So the question is, is can we reach the point where districts start to act like, you know, where we really get the scaling in our system right now is in the charter school sector. Charter schools use their wait lists as evidence to they, they, they give to the financiers to show, look, there are people that want us, right? This is why you should give us a loan, right? And, and on it goes. I think that the critical threshold that we very well may pass through in the not so distant future, and it's starting to see a little hints of it here and there, here in Arizona, is that you will see that some of these districts go, yeah, it's time for us to do this, right? If we if were to expand high demand uh, schools, we'll get more kids and, you know, and then, you know, and, and kids would be better served. The politics of that are very difficult. Um, you know, the sort of no organized interests, you know, mostly, you know, the unionized employee interests are um, not keen on this. In fact, during the pandemic, uh, our largest school district had a proposal that they were going to open up a number of micro schools. And uh, there was a school board meeting and, and a lot of, you know, sort of flat earth opposition. Uh, right. You know? But there are some really very capable visionary even leaders in Arizona school districts. And if they could navigate through these politics, then the future could be really bright, you know, because we've already got scaling going on in the charter sector. If, if the high performing districts started to scale too, might really be cooking with gas. That's great. Well, Matt, thanks so much for sharing that story about Arizona. I mean, it clearly is a model that other states can follow. This choice continues to expand at a rapid pace. As you mentioned earlier, Indiana's, you know, trying to nip on your heels and we have some advantages too, but 
uh, it was great this year to see places like West Virginia and Kentucky and others join the fray. So we'll be continuing to look to Arizona for new ideas and how to do things better and uh, continue to follow your work as you tell us that story. Thanks so much for joining us today, Matt. Thank you, Brian.